Good morning. Sorry, my wife's laughing. Anytime my wife is laughing, I like to take it in. I like oh, to enjoy. Geez. I like to enjoy those those moments. Oh man, yeah. I, I mentioned in the music that we're in a series. It's called Seven, but we're talking about seven churches that Jesus wrote letters to. Now he didn't write them. He dictated them to a guy named John, and then John wrote them down and sent them out to these churches. Um, and we've been looking at one church each week in the series. We're now on the fifth church. It's week six of the series, but we did an intro to the series. And I mentioned uh, last time, uh, last week, Jeremy spoke and did an amazing job. Week before that, I mentioned that these letters were traveling on a known mail route. So the churches, and they're, they're listed in order in the book of Revelation. So as the letter got to the church, it would be the, you know, the next one in the letter. And actually, to help with this mentally, I know some of you think visually like this, I actually created a map so that we can see uh, this mail route and how it works. So let's put that, let's put that up. Here we go. Um, first week we talked about Patmos. That's where John is. It's an isle, island where he is uh, exiled and he receives the vision from Jesus. Jesus tells him to write down what he hears and he writes the seven letters to the seven churches, but then also uh, the rest of Revelation, which is chapters four through uh, the end. So, um, And the order of these churches is the order we've been talking about them. We talked about Ephesus, which is a port city. Smyrna, which is a port city, Pergamos, which is inland a little bit. If you remember from Pergamos, um, they were the capital of the area for uh, in the the Roman, basically Greek and Roman times there, and uh, that's where they had the big altar and everything. Last week, Jeremy talked about Thyatira. Thyatira had the issue with the teacher that he called the Jezebel, and um, that's what Jeremy dealt with last week. So that brings us this week to a city called Sardis. Sardis. And uh, we're going to read in just a moment the entire letter to the church in Sardis. Uh, you're good. You can take that map down. There you go. Um, we're going to read the entire letter, and then we'll break it all down. Um, but first, I want to ask you a question. And, and I it, honestly I already know the, the answer to this question. Um, yeah, so spoiler alert. I guess it's, high, it's like, you know, it's hypothetical or whatever. But um, uh, or what's, what's the word when you already know the answer to the question? Rhetorical. Rhetorical. Thanks, Thomas. Um, it's a rhetorical question, right? Have you ever known someone who had a good reputation, but then you got to know them? And you realized that the reputation was not all it stacked up to be. Um, I think we probably all have. We may have been that person from time to time ourselves. Uh, I say that. I say that about myself, actually, not in like a self-deprecating way, but I feel like I'm a lot better on paper than I am in person. Um, and so, uh, I, for goodness sakes, elected officials, am I, am I right? We're in the middle of an election, and it's like, look, can we just assume that everybody who's running for a national or state office has some sort of skeleton in their closet? I'm like getting spam texts daily. Have you heard about... Yeah, yeah, of course I've heard. I, I know. Like, the, the, the perception of people, the reality often doesn't stack up to the perception. What we're going to meet in Sardis today is a church where that is very much the case. All right? So, um, appearances can be deceiving. So, we're going to start reading in Revelation. Now we're in chapter 3. So, we finished with chapter 2. We're in chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole letter. And don't worry, we'll come back. We'll talk about what everything means and, and break it all down. Okay. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Uh, now, I think it's interesting. I just want to point out right on the tail end of that, let, the, let them hear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, he intends that not only these letters are going directly to the church that it's going to, and that church would learn from what he says to them about their, their own church, but these letters are all going out to all of the churches. And I believe he intends for all of these letters to be read in all of the churches so that not only they could learn from the letter to them, but they would learn from the letter to all of them. They would learn from the church in Philadelphia and the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna and the church in Pergamos, and they would learn from all of them, and they'd be able to take what they see in other churches and apply it to their own, especially what he says specifically about their church. Now, Jesus didn't write a letter to our church, not like this. And so what we're doing is we're looking at all these other churches and saying, where might we resemble this church? Where might other churches resemble this church? Where might we as individuals resemble these churches? And how can we learn from what he's taught them? But first, we have to understand what he's saying to them. That's always step number one. And I think this is an important lesson. If we just open the Bible and the first question that we ask is, what does this mean to me? we will make mistakes with the scripture. We will get it wrong. The first question we're supposed to ask is, what does this mean? What does it mean to the original person that heard it? Only then can we understand what it means to us. Only then can we apply it in the right way, or sometimes it's meant to be applied to us, and sometimes it isn't, not in the same way. So what we're doing in this series is really a big practice in contextualization. We're trying to understand the cities that are being written to, the churches that are being written to, and therefore better understanding what Jesus is saying to them. Once we understand what Jesus is saying to them, then we can understand how to apply that to ourselves. That's what we're doing in this entire series. I wanted to point that out, particularly for those of you that might be joining us for the first time in this message. And if you are, by the way, we're glad you're here, and I would encourage you to listen to any or all of the messages in this series, particularly the first one really lays a great foundation for the rest of them. So let's talk about Sardis. Now, each week in the series, we're taking a good bit of time to talk about the history of the town. That helps us better understand the letter. Sardis is a very interesting town. Very interesting town. It's not on a port. It's not like Ephesus or Smyrna. It wasn't... um, It wasn't a place like Pergamos, which is pretty close to the coast, too. You might notice that even you think about in America, most major cities are built on ports or major rivers because of the trade that travels through there. Um, Charlotte is, a, I think, a notable exception to that. (laughs) There is no major waterway or anything that comes through Charlotte, but the the majority of them do 
And Thyatira doesn't have either of those. So you might wonder, how does a town like this even spring up? In fact, at one time, before the Greek time of the Greeks and the time of the Romans and all that, uh, in uh, what we now know as Turkey, the west half of Turkey was a kingdom called the Kingdom of Lydia, one of the most powerful nations on the planet. That's where Sardis is, along with Ephesus, along with all of the cities that we're talking about in this series. And Sardis was the capital of the Kingdom of Lydia. And you might wonder why it's not a major trade route. It's not like, like if you, you understand why some big cities grow up the way they are, Istanbul, for example, if you look on a map kind of north of Turkey, you look at Istanbul, it was Constantinople, but now it's Istanbul, okay. not Constantinople. Um, but it's it's in a spot where like the all the land comes down to here and you've got huge water on either side. So everybody passing through had to go through that area. Makes sense why it would be such a big city. But you look at Lydia and you go, why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because uh, Sardis is situated on the edge of the mountains and there is a small river coming out of the mountains, and in that river is gold. Sardis was a gold rush town. And because there was so much gold and and, uh, coming out of the mountain, Sardis became incredibly wealthy. And they were already so wealthy that they were made the kingdom of Lydia. And there was this king in Lydia whose name was Croesus. Croesus, it's C-R-O, if you're taking notes, C-R-O-E-S-U-S, or if you're checking my historical facts, <laughs> Croesus, Croesus became one of the richest kings or richest people to ever live on the face of the planet. But it wasn't just because there was gold coming down out of the mountain. See, at that, at that time, they didn't have a way to refine gold. So gold, when you would get it out of the river, out of the stream, uh, it would be a mixture of gold and silver alloys. And they made coins and for centuries had been making coins out of this, uh, this gold-silver alloy. It's called electrum. Really cool name. Sounds like a superhero. Now, they would make coins out of electrum. But the problem was you never knew how much of that was gold and how much of that was silver. So it was very hard to value currency because it wasn't pure. Well, guess what old Croesus did? (laughs) He, well, he didn't do it. He had some smart people (laughs) that did it. They figured out the process to refine gold and silver and to separate the two alloys. So they were the first ones to mint pure gold coins and pure silver coins. So now they knew exactly how much gold was in it, exactly how much silver was in it, and exactly how much it could be valued. And it all happened in Sardis. This was the first civilization, the first city in the world up until that point that had a reliable standard of currency. And Sardis is where the bimetallic standard system came from. The gold standard, the silver standard, it started in Sardis. Sardis was the mint for the entire known world at the time. And so they were incredibly 
wealthy and incredibly important. In fact, so important that in 17 AD, they had a devastating earthquake that leveled everything in the city and the Roman government bankrolled the rebuilding of the entire city. Millions, billions of dollars they spent in today's money to rebuild the city and they exempted everyone in the city from taxes for five years after that earthquake happened so they could get back on their feet. That's how important it was. All right, so Sardis has a, a, a catastrophic event. They're the bank and the government bails them out. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is, no, this is nothing new. They needed the bank. They needed the bank to be as powerful as they were. Sardis was a very rich, very important city. In fact, uh, a couple of times throughout this series, I've just tried to imagine what American city would be equate to the city we're reading about. And I think probably the best, it really jumped out, probably the best um, uh, comparison would be San Francisco. It's a gold rush town, and it is the site now of the modern gold rush, which is tech. <laughs> it is incredibly wealthy, pro property prices through the roof. You have to be rich, rich, rich to live in or around San Francisco. And so I think Sardis, San Francisco is the modern Sardis. So much money, so much wealth, so much importance, so much significance. So we know a good bit about the city of Sardis. We don't know much about the church in Sardis. Well, the reason might be clear from what we read in the scripture. We don't know much about the church in Sardis. They have uncovered a church building. It's next to a massive Jewish synagogue. <laughs> they found a tiny, a tiny little church building. We don't know who the pastor was here. We don't know. We don't know much about it, okay? But we know a little bit about the city, and that's going to help us as we read through this letter. So let's get back into it in verse one, and we'll talk our way through the verses so we understand the symbolism and things going on. We'll make sure we understand what all that is. All right, in verse one, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, right? Remember, the angel is the messenger of the church. It's the pastor, the leader, the, the bishop of the church, whatever the title would have been. It's the leader of the church. And as I mentioned, we don't know who that is here. All right, but it's written to them, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, we've already covered that earlier in the series. We, we know what these are because Jesus told us what they are. Um, the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit. It's representative of the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. So it's the completeness of the Spirit. So that's the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers of the church. Jesus holds them in his hands. All right, he continues. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. In the, in the wise words of my wife, oof. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is rough to hear from Jesus. I mean, it's probably rough to hear from anybody, but to hear that from Jesus, I know everybody says you're alive. You've got a reputation, but that is all you have. Everybody looks at this church and says, they are killing it. And Jesus says, they are being killed. <laughs> exactly the opposite. I was trying to think of uh, oh, how to characterize this church, I suppose. I thought maybe we call them the zombie church. You know, the, they're the undead church. They, they look alive, but they're not. Uh, but then I thought, here's a better one. Ready? 
Uh, they're the good and plenty church. The candy, you know the candy? The candy because terrible. Yeah, because you look at because you look at the outside of the good and plenty, and you're like, oh, candy coated outside. It looks so sweet, and then you bite into it, black licorice. Ugh. Oh, never liked it. Never will. Horrible. Okay, <laughs> black licorice. Terrible. They look good on the ins on the outside, but inside, it's not good. It's not good. And the deal is that they are more interested in looking good for others than they are in being good for Jesus. They're more interested in looking good for others than they are in being good for Jesus. And you got to look at a church like this and think, how does that happen? How does it happen? I mean, surely they were alive at some point, right? Surely at some point they had, they had good things going on. Everything was right with the church when they first started maybe. But something has happened. Well, I think I know what happened to it. And maybe you already know what happened to it too. Money happened to it. Prominence happened to it. Fame happened to it. And it is so easy to become complacent when you already think you have everything that you need. It's very easy to become focused on outward appearances when you're able to adorn it so nicely. When you're able to put the right car, the right chariot in the garage, you're able to have the right house in the right place and wear the right clothes and, and you got to worry about how you present yourself in the marketplace and, you know, Sardis, because of all the money, brought in all kinds of other industries, wealthy industries, fancy industries, the dyeing of clothes and, and, and silversmithing and all these kinds of things. And so appearances became really, really important. And the reality is materialistic societies almost always transform into superficial societies because that's what money and wealth does to us. It's what, does, what it does to our heart. And it seems to be what happened, has happened to this church. I, there's, a, there's a noticeable absence in this letter that Jesus writes as compared to the other letters. I feel like it's, it's substantially different than the other letters that we've read. He doesn't at all talk about persecution coming. He doesn't talk about anybody from the outside persecuting them or them getting ready to be martyred or to die, as he says to other churches, or where it's already happened in some places, like, like uh, Pergamos. He does. There, he says nothing about false teaching, which is something he says to almost all of the other ones, that, that there are people coming in and they're trying to teach the wrong thing and you're either fighting that off or you're not fighting that off. He doesn't say a word about that to them. It appears, based on the fact he doesn't bring up any of that, that this church is facing no opposition whatsoever. So you take a church that's flush with money and wealth and success and you put no opposition or pressure against it and this is what you get. You get complacency. And we've said throughout the series, like, well, this city really feels like it's like the United States, or this city really feels like it's the United States. And I think probably they all are in one way or another. And I'd say that this one certainly is as well. Because we live in a culture where there is little to no real opposition against us. 
We do have to worry about false teaching and other ideas coming into our churches, but there's no active physical persecution coming against the church. We have more money than most other nations on the planet. Most of us are wearing clothes right now, which is, that's a good deal, wow. although you're streaming, so I wouldn't know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but we have, you know, we have vehicles, we have, we have uh, jobs, we have 401ks that may or may not still have money in them. We have, uh, because a lot, a lot of us have houses for our cars. Okay, we have garages where our cars should live, but they don't because all our junk is in there. And when all of our junk fills up that space, then we get a storage unit. So there's so many different ways that that this that the church today could easily go the path of the church of Sardis because the conditions are so very similar. And so we have to be very careful. It looks like their complacency had led them into dead works. It's not that they weren't doing anything. He said, you have a reputation of being alive. People look at you from the outside and they say, that church is amazing. I mean, look at all that they're doing. But the problem is they were doing it without any life behind it. I think they had mistaken activity for progress. Those are not the same things. Just because you're doing things doesn't mean you're doing anything. And it doesn't mean that your heart is right behind it. And that looks to be the case with this church. Now, could that happen to a church today? No finger pointing. <laughs> no, no finger pointing. But I did, I did, I once heard about a church that was so dead that a guy had a heart attack in the middle of the service. Corner carried out 12 people before he found the right one. <laughs> okay. Oh. My wife doesn't think that joke's funny, but I think that joke's Ben's laughing. I, that joke's pretty funny. All right. He does laugh at my jokes. That's why, that's why I keep, that's why he's my friend and I keep him around. Um <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. That's not the only reason. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, listen, we can joke about it, but the truth is, the truth is, getting, getting serious, it's not funny. It's really not funny. In fact, in fact, it's incredibly sad. So we, we shouldn't point, church, point fingers at other churches and say, this church is dead or whatever. I mean, who are we to judge that anyway? Jesus can judge that, but we aren't supposed to judge that. But it's incredibly sad because there are churches that are like that. And you look at the church in um, Sardis, and what's sad about it is, think about the potential this church had with all of the resources they had and all the influences and without the restriction of persecution holding them back, what they could have accomplished is mind-boggling, but they weren't because they had the wrong focus. And I look across the, the United States of America in particular, that's my frame of reference. I look across our country and look at all these churches that, again, not finger pointing, I don't want to call out churches or anything or criticize, but I think there are churches that are like this in America. And it's a, the resources that they have at their disposal are incredible. These are churches that have been around for hundreds of years. They have their feet under them. They have, you know, their buildings are paid for and their ministries are established. And they've got people that have been there for forever and, and love the church and and, and what they could accomplish, except the focus is wrong. And because the focus is wrong, they're not doing all that Jesus wants them to do. And it's incredibly, incredibly sad. Meanwhile, you have all these churches out here, and I'm not, I hope we're in this category, but I'm not going to judge us either. But, but you've got all these churches out here that are getting started and are passionate and have all this desire and really focused on the right things, and they don't have two nickels to scratch together, you know? That's not us. So we're, we're in a good financial position, but are just getting started, and they're just, you know, like we're in a position, we're trying to find, you know, looking at places to meet and, and whatever. I think about back to when we started, and 
And so, man, you could put all that resources together, it'd be incredible. But but to look at this church is so incredibly sad because of the potential that it represented. And we're really going to see a contrast of the church that gets talked about next week. Um, they had so much potential, and uh, and it was it was a waste. But like I said, uh, we really shouldn't point a finger and blame because I, I, I believe this is like a natural life cycle of a church. Okay, And I want, I want to kind of draw that out. We, we need to be aware of this because I don't think that we're— I don't think that we're in this position for us, but we need to have our eyes open to it so that we can see it when it's happening and, and, and try and prevent it from in our church or maybe if you're a part of another church too, okay? So what happens with uh, a ministry is that it typically will start off as a movement, okay? I'm glad to see the marker is still alive. The marker is, this is... You mark this is M15. Yeah. That's a big marker. (laughs) M15 is a big marker. It's way bigger. The M7, you know, not worth your time. Anyway, so it starts off as a movement, and this everybody's excited and ready to go, man. You're excited about this church and uh, what it's going to mean for your community and everything. And I've been a part of church plants and campus plants, and this is a really exciting time to 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 be a a part of something like that. But eventually. It has to, in a way, it has to move from movement to an organization. It's an organization based on a movement, but you have to put some things in place. And like the idea of having a church that's a movement and stays a movement forever is really, really nice in theory. But eventually it has to move to an organization. You find that's the, the natural life cycle because you all of a sudden you have to figure out, well, what do we do if people are making donations? How do we manage that? How do we make decisions now? August, now we need a budget. Now we need a board to set that budget. You know, it just it's how it works. So the movement becomes an organization. The organization exists for enough time. Eventually, the organization becomes an institution. And this is where you're going to find that the the organizational things that get put in place really start to solidify. They really start to become... Uh, sacred cows in a way in the institution where we're not going to change this uh, system. We're not going to change this structure. The, or- the organization is still a lot more flexible than the institution is. The institution is, is really putting down some roots. And then if you're not careful, and all three of these can be effective in their own ways in ministry, but if you're not careful, y- you go from movement to an organization, from an organization to an institution, and from an institution... Make sure I use the right word. From an institution to a monument. And the monument is now no longer going to change. It is set in stone. It can be cold. It looks like, it looks like that. A monument to a past time. A past time when we were a movement and when we were an organization, but it has continued to settle. I think one of the ways that helps me, uh, visual analogies, and and it's helpful for me, think of this in terms of of, of boats, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's it's a jump, but jump with me, okay? It's, when you start off as a moment, you're like a life raft, okay? (laughs) I know everything else is capital, but the I is lowercase, forgive me. 
start off as a life raft. It's like people are just climbing in, you know? Like, we don't know exactly where we're going, we're just trying to find shore, you know? Everybody's jumping into the boat. That's the movement. Eventually, you put a little structure in place, and now you're a speedboat. Now you're speedboat. Now you got some organization, you got some power. That's what happens. Eventually, that speedboat continues to grow, take on people, take on more stability. Now you've got a cruise ship. Okay? And all, th all three of these can be effective and useful and needed within the confines of the water, I guess, <laughs> and getting from point A to point B. But eventually, continues to solidify, puts down some root and foundation, you become a maritime museum. <laughs> My wife laughed. That's a stretch. I get it. Okay? <laughs> I get it. It's, the reason the idea of a museum makes a lot of sense to me is because you go to a museum and it's look but don't touch. You know? Look but don't touch. We don't disturb these things. They're in their place, we walk through, we observe, but there's very little participation in a museum like this. There's very, very little interaction. You go through the motions, you see the same things over and over again. That's what happens in a monument style of church. And I think that's exactly what's happened to the church in Sardis. They've been able, in fact, you're able to move through these levels very quickly when there's no persecution or opposition against you. It's very easy to move through this. And so we shouldn't judge because everybody is going to follow this path unless they make different choices. Unless they recognize this as the natural flow of a ministry or a church and say, we're going to do something to change it. And so the exact same thing can happen with a church. And it's a, it's a movement from, I've got a couple words I want to put up here too. It's a movement from passion to pretension. The word pretension is a really interesting or pretentious. You might have noticed in the, the description of the, of the video that we called this a church of pretentious life. Um, this is the definition of the word pretentious. Attempting to impress by affecting or portraying greater importance or talent, in this case life, than is actually possessed. So it's trying to impress people by putting on an air of what's not actually there. And that's what's happening with this church. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, I apologize. That was corny, I know. And the sad thing is we, we probably all know churches, well, maybe in every stage of this, but we certainly know churches that are down here. And again, we don't want to judge, but it's a little bit like a frog being boiled. You know, they're cold-blooded. And so supposedly, I've never done this, and don't do this, but supposedly put a frog in water, you can boil them and they won't know it because it just, it's just happening to them, and they're just adjusting with it as it happens. And that's what happens with churches as well. It seems to be what's happened with this church, and the reality is that is not an organizational problem. It is a people problem, because the church is what the people are. And so if we allow it to happen to us, we allow it to happen with our church, and then ultimately it's what happens, and, and that is what happened here. But thankfully, Jesus has this kind of very cold reality to share with them, but then he tells them how they can resuscitate their church. So let's take a look at verse 2. He says, Be watchful 
be watchful and strengthen the thing that re- things which remain. The, to strengthen here means to stabilize, all right, or solidify. The things that which remain that are ready to die this is a word they use that actually means on at death's door or on their deathbed. So these things, they still got some good things. They got still got some life living things happening in their church. They need to grab on before they go too. And he says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. The word perfect means complete or full. So I've not found your works, I found your works incomplete or I've not found your works complete. I've not found your works full. So there's more they need to be doing or different they need to be doing. Verse three, remember therefore, how you have received and heard, go back, return, hold fast, and repent. Repent is a bit of a churchy word, but what it means is to change your mind, to shift your thinking, to do a 180, all right? I once heard somebody say, repentance means doing a 360, and I was like, no. I feel like you're going the same direction. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so do a 540 then, I, you know, just keep going, <laughs> another 180. Um, but it means to repent, change your direction, change your mind. And he says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, at first glance, him saying, now, if you don't become watchful, I'm going to come upon you. Sounds like he's like going to attack them or something. <laughs> like he's going to show up and punish them. But I don't think that's what he's saying because what he says here sounds very similar to something that he s- said to us earlier when he was here on earth doing his ministry. When he talked about coming and coming as a thief and not knowing what hour he was going to come, what he was talking about was his return. And what he's saying to them This word, uh, he says, be watchful. This is the beginning of verse two. He says, be watchful. That word be actually means, it has a sense of to become. So they're not being watchful. They need to become watchful. And what does it mean to be watchful in the context of what we're reading? Well, if he's talking about his return, it means they need to start thinking about him coming back. They've obviously forgotten that. They've taken their eyes off of Jesus and his return, and they've placed their eyes on the world. They're not concerned about, they don't think Jesus is going to come back today. And what is he going to think of me when he comes back? They're wondering what the guy next door is thinking about them today. And because of that, it's leading them into cold, dead religious acts instead of passionate love for Jesus. So they need to become watchful. They need to be ready and looking for his return. They've basically been lulled to sleep by their lifestyle. You need to anticipate his return. I'll say this about, about churches in America. I know this for sure just based on the experience that I've had in many, many churches. Not enough churches talk about the return of Jesus. Churches talk a lot about Jesus' death for our sins, his resurrection, conquering sin and death, but very few actively talk about the return of Jesus. We, we act oftentimes in America and live because we are so comfortable and because we all expect to live to a ripe old age and die in our sleep, or at least that's what we want, you know? We all expect that because of the lifestyle that we live in, the kind of medicine that we have and physical care and all of that kind of stuff, that we think often about living a full life and plan for a full life and a long life and then dying and going to heaven. That's the way we talk about it. But it's very difficult for us to live with the perspective and the mindset that Jesus could return this afternoon before the football games start. 
And if he does that, am I ready for him to come back? You know, you'll, you'll see people with tracks and flyers that say, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Well, it's all about us going to him. But what if he comes to us? <laughs> one of those two things is going to happen first, and we don't know which one. We don't know when he's going to be back. We don't know when he's returning. But he is. Talking about his return is as important as talking about his death and resurrection. They all need to go together. Christ came to earth. He died for our sins. He rose again, and he's coming back. That's where our hope comes from, that our hope isn't in this world. It's in him. We're all waiting for our time to come. We should be waiting for his time to come. That's where our focus should be. And what happened to them is they were taking their eyes off of Jesus, and they were putting their eyes on the world. And the same thing can happen to us. So I want to take these instructions that Jesus gave in these few verses and boil it down to just three things. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these things down. Um, and they're, they're helpful for me as I think about how to prevent this in my, my own life, as you may think about how to present, prevent it in your own life. The first thing they needed to do was review or review. Okay, review, review. They needed to open their eyes and look at their life the way Jesus looked at their life. And they, they weren't doing that. They were looking at their life and their actions through the lens of what other people were going to think about them, not what Jesus was going to think about them. And so we need to, he said, you got you to find what's left. You got to find what remains. And you need to hold fast to that. You need to look at your church the way I look at your church and figure out what's good, what's not good. Get rid of what's not good and hold on to what is good. And that can be a difficult thing to do, but, you know, we look in our life right now, and maybe you just look at yourself, and maybe this is, this is the lens we look through right now when we're not, you know, judging another church or, or whatever, and I don't think we're here as a church, but just judge ourselves and say, what about me? And say, maybe some of you feel today like, maybe you feel like you're in this place where you got a reputation of being alive, but you're not. That's very real. I know I feel that sometimes. And so the first thing that we have to do is we have to look at our life, and we have to say, what's happening right now that's good? What's happening right now that still has life in it? And I need to keep that. I need to hold fast to that. So I need to review. I need to look at things the way Jesus does. The second thing is to recollect or recollect. He said you need to look back. You need to think back to when you heard and when you received. When you first heard the gospel and you were so excited and so passionate and you were so thankful and so, so loving and you've lost that. You need to go back. Recollect. Recollect. Grab what was good and pull it, hold fast to it and pull it into the present. So if you feel like maybe you're going down this path of, of looking alive but being dead, think back to a time in your life when you say, I was alive then. Maybe it was when you got saved. Maybe it was a particular point in your life where you're like, I was really on fire and I was really passionate. Go back to that time, figure out what you were doing and what was inspiring that and grab it and take what was in the past and drag it into the present and add it to what is already good in the present. And you're going to have a solid foundation of life on which to build. That's what this church needed to do. And it's what we can do too. And then the third thing is to reform or reform. Set a new direction. Hold on to what's good now. Pull forward what, what was good in the past and set a new direction. Say, I'm going to do these things. These, these are going to be my habits. This is, this is how I'm going to pray. This is how I'm going to read. This is how I'm going to serve. This is how I'm going to love. This is how I'm going to, get, going to inspire and grow my passion and life for Jesus Christ. 
and recapture what's been lost. And the beautiful thing is that this church could have done each one of these steps and they would have come out of this. They would have breathed life back into their church and they could have been done incredible things for the kingdom. But all signs tell us that's not what happened. And uh, it seems like, at least in Sardis, that ultimately Judaism ruled the day until, of course, Islam pushed everything in that region out of the way. But uh, by 500 AD, there was a massive Jewish synagogue and it was clear that they were running the show in Sardis. Maybe you say, well, man, that's me. That's where I am. I'm going through the motions. I have no passion. What do I do? It's the same things. Review, recollect, and reform. He has good news now for this church, even though they didn't seem to do this. They, he does have good news for them. Verse 4. So you have a few names, you people, even in Sardis, even in Sardis. I, it seems like a concession, doesn't it? Um, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled. That's to, to pollute or stain their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this could be a little bit confusing because he talks about these white garments in two different verses. And if you think that it means the same thing in both, which would be the natural tendency, uh, there'd be a tendency to make an, an error here. But um, first he says in verse 4, there's some of you that haven't polluted your garments. And because of that, you're going to walk with me in white because you're worthy. And then in the next verse, he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So you might think that's exactly the same thing, but it's not exactly the same thing. In verse 5, when he says, he who overcomes, he uses that phrase, um, I think, in every letter through here, at least the, the, the ones that we've done so far, he says, to he who overcomes. Now, who's he talking about? Is he talking about people who get this right, people who do good works, people who fight off bad teaching, people who, no. When he says, he who overcomes, he's talking about every believer. Now, John says this also in his, um, in uh, 1 John chapter 5, let me, Read that to you, 1 John chapter 5. I think we've got it on the screen too. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the overcomers are all of us. <laughs> we, because of Christ... See, we believe as Christians, we don't overcome the world by being holy. We don't overcome the world. We don't overcome sin by being good. We don't stack up the good against the bad, and as long as the good deeds outweigh the bad ones, then we're going to get into heaven. That's not what we believe. We believe that we are overcomers through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin because we couldn't possibly do enough good things to overcome the bad ones. And even if we do, congratulations, we've joined the rest of humanity. How do you, I don't know how you even do it. You can't do it. And most religious systems are based on that, but ours is not. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, proving power over sin and death, and our faith and hope, our overcoming comes through him. And then we go through a process in life of trying to follow him, serve him, love him, as our appreciation for what he's done for us flows over into a life of righteousness and service and all that he wants from our life. 
But our righteousness and our service and all that he wants from our life is not how we get in. All right? So think of it this way. Let's just let's think about the, the garment for a second. Imagine, imagine that Jesus is standing there and holding a white coat. And he says, listen, anybody who comes to me and believes in me can have this white coat. And so we make a decision. We say, I believe in you. I believe in what you did for me. And so we walk over and he puts that coat on our shoulders. Those of you golfers, just imagine the the jacket at Augusta going on you, okay? He puts a white coat. It's not a white coat at Augusta, but Jesus' coat is white. So he puts a white coat on you. That coat came from him. And because that coat came from Jesus, that should be the most prized possession that we have. We should, we, we should do everything that we can do to keep it clean and to maintain it and to keep it from getting ripped or torn. And he gives us, he gives us all the instructions we need in order to keep it clean. But what happens in our life is that the further and further we get from that transaction of him giving us the coat, the more and more we forget that he gave it to us, the less and less value it can easily have. And so we start doing things we're not supposed to do not doing things that we're supposed to do, and that coat starts to get dirty. It starts to get stains on it. It starts to get dirt on it. It starts to fray at the edges and get tears in the seams because we're not using the coat the way we're supposed to use the coat. And then one day, we meet Jesus again. Now, it might be because we go to him or it might be because he comes to us, whichever one happens first. Two things are going to happen. First, he's going to look to see if we're wearing the coat. And if we're wearing the coat, then we get to spend eternity with him. All right? He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So all of us that are wearing the white coat. But the second thing that he's going to do is he's going to look at the condition of the coat. And the care that we have given to the coat is going to represent how much he can trust us in his kingdom. Whether that's heaven or here on earth when he returns to establish his kingdom here, how we took care of the coat will show him how much we can be trusted. And he says to those in Sardis, he says, there are some of you who have not polluted, not stained, not gotten your coats dirty, which is even in Sardis, unbelievable. There are some people that haven't done that. And they will walk with me. That's the key right there. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They'll get, to, they'll get to rule with Jesus. They'll get to serve with Jesus. They'll, they'll have a higher level of reward because they've been faithful with what they've been given. That's what he's talking about. And he wants, an, he wants to encourage those people that are in Sardis because it could be easy. Listen, it is a stressful thing to be a living Christian in a dead church, to look all around you and to see that there's, there's nothing happening here, but you're passionate and you're excited. It's a very frustrating place to be. And for Sardis, Jesus is saying, I know there are some of you here and you just need to know your time is coming. Okay? Your time is coming. And at a time in a place like this, they didn't have an option of going to another church down the street. <laughs> you know, there was a church in Sardis. So they had to deal with where they were, but he wanted them to keep their hope pointed forward because apparently that's where it still was where it was supposed to be, pointed forward to his return. So he gives them encouragement. Now, some of you may, may find that a little discouraging because you may say, you know, I, I accepted that coat from Jesus years ago. You know, I, I accepted salvation years ago, but boy, I hadn't paid any attention to it. And I've devalued it. And maybe you, your coat feels very dirty, very stained. But here's the hope. And Jesus gives this hope to this church. I don't, they didn't 
take it apparently, but Jesus gives us hope to this church. If you return to me, if you become watchful, if you change your focus, if you go back and grab onto what was good before, and if you repent and you set a new direction, then you can be like these that have kept it pure. What, what that means is that if we, if we recognize what's happening in our life, we realize that we are dying inside, and, but we want to, to get things right again with Jesus. We want to get on, back on track with him and turn around and reform our life. Then we can walk right back to Jesus, put our eyes on him, walk right back to him, and he's holding a big bucket of bleach. <laughs> and he'll take that coat and he will whiten it again. And we can't get back the time that we lost. It's, that's gone. But we can restart. And from this moment forward, we can walk in white. And we can earn reward with him. And so even if you feel like you've, you've gone personally the path of Sardis, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can come back to him. You can turn away. You can repent. And you can walk with Jesus closely once again. But it's not an easy thing to do. Think about churches who may find themselves here, that may find themselves in the position of Sardis. To take these steps is very, very difficult, and unfortunately, most churches won't. For a Christian to take these steps is is difficult, but I want you to know that it's worth it. It's worth it. All right, let's go to him and let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for your love and your forgiveness. Even looking at a church like this, so sad to see where they had gotten So sad to look around us and know that there are other churches because we're in the same kind of incubator they were in that we could easily go the same path and direction as the church in Sardis and we don't want to, though we know others have. And so, God, I pray that you would help them see in the same way you're trying to help Sardis see that they needed to become watchful. They needed to turn their eyes back to you, anticipating your return. But they needed to grab onto what was still alive and what was still good. They needed to reach back and grab the things that once were alive and were good and draw them forward. And that they needed to set a new direction and repent. And God, I, though they didn't, churches today can. So we pray that you would move in them through your spirit and to do that. We pray, God, that you would keep us from walking this path as a church. You would keep us from becoming cold. You would keep us from becoming complacent even as we move through our life and through our ministry, that we wouldn't follow the same path. And for each of us individually, God, I pray specifically for someone who feels like they look at their life today and they say, I used to be alive. I have a reputation for being alive. People think I am, but I'm not. And you'd help them to take a genuine step, not for anyone else to see, not to parade in front of people to prove they're spiritual, but to to really draw back into love with you. Help them to do that through the power of your spirit. We all find ourselves in seasons where this happens to us, so keep us aware, prepared. If there's anybody who looks at their life right now, God, and says, I've never been alive. I've never believed in Jesus for salvation. I've never put on that coat. And I pray you would inspire them today to do it. There's nothing stopping them. To believe, to put their faith in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of their sins. To believe in his death and to believe in his resurrection. And today to put on that coat. And God, I pray that as we all walk together on this journey 
in light of our salvation and in light of our faith, that you would help us to remain free from spot, free from blemish, free from the stains of the world, to have a kingdom mindset instead of a worldly mindset, to put on love and humility instead of pride and greed, that we would be like those that are in Sardis, that you said they have, not, they have kept themselves from blemish and spot, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. We pray, God, that together we can help each other be faithful to do that. So we put our eyes forward, our hope in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.